Hello, and welcome to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, brought to you by the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association. I'm your host, Matt Abel. Hello, Squeaky Clean listeners. Welcome to the 45th episode of this Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, where we bring you the latest in North Carolina clean energy news, policy, and more every two weeks. Before we get started, we have a few announcements to share with the group. As most of our listeners probably know, the 2021 legislative session down at the North Carolina General Assembly is in full swing. This year is the opportunity to be a pivotal point in North Carolina's energy trajectory. Our team is hard at work representing the interests of the clean energy industry to drive growth, create additional jobs, and ensure all North Carolinians are able to benefit from one of the fastest growing sectors in the economy. If you're interested in getting into the weeds, talking shop, and learning more about the specifics of opportunities in front of us, I'd encourage you to sign up today to become an NCSEA member at energync.org. Next up, the 2021 State Energy Conference is just around the corner, coming up April 19th through the 22nd. If you haven't visited in the past, it's a great opportunity to receive continuing education credits, learn about new energy solutions and best practices, and connect with other energy industry professionals. Also, we're especially excited to announce that there will be a live recording of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast at this year's Virtual State Energy Conference. To find out more about the conference and to check us out live, visit ncenergyconference.com. All right, so let's dive into the topic of today's pod. Back in 2018, Governor Cooper signed Executive Order 80, designed to establish carbon reduction goals for the state of North Carolina, including a goal of reducing statewide greenhouse gas emissions by 40% below 2005 levels by 2025. Included in that executive order was the directive to the North Carolina Department of Environmental Quality to create a clean energy plan that, quote, fosters and encourages the utilization of clean energy resources, including energy efficiency, solar, wind, energy storage, and other innovative technologies in the public and private sectors, and the integration of those resources to facilitate the development of a modern and resilient electric grid. Fast forward, DEQ completed that plan in October of 2019 and included were a number of strategy areas and recommendations, two of which led to fairly large and involved stakeholder processes that we'll be highlighting in this episode. The A1 recommendation is focused on decarbonizing the electric power sector, and B1 consists of identifying and recommending policies that align regulatory incentives and processes with 21st century public policy goals, customer expectations, utility needs, and technology innovation. So specifically, in today's episode, we'll be sitting down with some of the individuals who helped to facilitate each of these conversations to talk about each of the stakeholder processes and some of the final recommendations and reports coming out of each of them. So given the depth of today's topic, we'll be breaking out this episode into two parts. Our first, and what you'll hear today, is focused on the A1 carbon reduction stakeholder process. So let's do it. Clean energy. Clean. 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 
energy. Our guest on the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast directs the Climate and Energy Program at the Duke Nicholas Institute and is a senior lecturing fellow at Duke Law School. Our guest's work focuses on electricity sector policy related to decarbonization and deployment of clean energy resources. Furthermore, our guest joined Duke from Harvard Law School, where she founded and directed the Harvard Environmental Policy Initiative and taught oil and gas law. Previously, our guest served as Chief Environmental Counsel to U.S. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. Our guest began her legal career as an environmental enforcement trial attorney at the Department of Justice and earned a law degree with honors at the University of California, Hastings College of the Law, and a bachelor's degree in political science from Tufts University. Friends of the pod, welcome Kate Konchnik, Climate and Energy Director at the Nicholas Institute for Environmental Policy Solutions at Duke University. Kate, welcome to the pod. Thanks, Matt. It's a pleasure. I'm so glad you invited me. Fantastic. All right, so let's jump right into it. So under the Clean Energy Plan put forth by the North Carolina Department of Environmental Quality, a series of key recommendations were laid out to achieve the goals of reducing electric power sector greenhouse gas emissions by 70% below 2005 levels by 2030 and attaining carbon neutrality by 2050, along with accelerating clean energy development and increasing access and affordability to clean energy amongst North Carolinians. One of those recommendations was to deliver a report that puts forth carbon reduction policies that best advance core values such as greenhouse gas emission reductions, electricity affordability, and grid reliability. Can you tell us a little bit more about the A1 recommendation and how it fits into the overall clean energy plan? Sure, I'd be happy to. So I might be biased, but in my view, A1 is really foundational to the rest of the clean energy plan and really to the broader executive order 80 that Governor Cooper signed in late 2018. So North Carolina isn't alone in seeing decarbonization of the power sector as sort of the key building block on which you build a decarbonized society. And there's a there's a couple reasons for that. The power sector decarbonization goals that you just mentioned in the intro, they go much further, right, than the economy-wide carbon reduction goals that Governor Cooper set in 2018. And that's because we have cost-competitive technologies in the power sector um, ready to deploy today and being deployed today. Um, And that's in contrast with some of the sort of harder-to-abate sectors of our economy. In addition, and and because of that, a lot of decarbonization strategies look to cleaning up the power sector and then starting to rely more on electricity to power other parts of our daily lives. So transportation, for instance. So if we're gonna decarbonize all of society uh, and we're trying to figure out the easiest places to act first, it really is the power sector. And then that enables us to shift some of our other energy uses in the economy to the electricity sector without shifting emissions or increasing emissions and seeing a rebound. Finally, EO80 was as much about stimulating the clean energy economy as it was about staving off the worst effects of climate change. And so I think what's interesting and important and foundational about A1 as well is that It's talking about those really important directional signals that we want to give to the grid to let the utilities, the rural co-ops, the municipal utilities, and a lot of other power producers sort of play in this space and and sort of help us all achieve this, this low carbon goal that we've got. 
And that's a really good point that you bring up. Um, you know, a couple of things, right? One, the clean energy economy is already one of the fastest growing sectors in the country right now. But also, I think it's an important point to note as we're kind of still in the midst of the economic crisis associated with, with COVID. And with with talking about carbon policies and, and accelerating the clean energy economy in an area we've already seen so much growth and driving forward economic development and creating more jobs is incredibly important like a, in a time like right now. So I think having that sort of narrative and paradigm and looking at these policies is incredibly important to the atmosphere that we're living in today. So specifically, um, kind of diving into the A1 recommendation, DEQ called out accelerated coal retirements, market-based carbon reduction programs, and clean energy policies such as an updated renewable energy portfolio standard, uh, clean energy standard, um, and EERS. Have these policies been successful in other markets throughout the country, and why study them here in North Carolina? Sure, yeah. So we uh, had this year-plus-long process where we worked with a group of stakeholders and built from a lot of the discussions that had taken place in the Clean Energy Plan. And as you said, in that Clean Energy Plan, these sort of general policy pathways, ways of getting to a low-carbon grid were outlined. During that process and during ours, we absolutely looked to other states for information and for inspiration. And sometimes we felt, hey, there, that particular state has very similar regulatory contexts as ours, similar types of utilities. We can just go ahead and, and sort of bring that idea here. Other times we talked about it needing to be adapted to meet local circumstances. But a lot of our process also talked about policies and experience from right here at home in North Carolina. So you mentioned the reps, uh, and there was a lot of talk in the clean energy plan process and in our A1 process about the reps and how successful it's been and talking about whether we should expand it or convert it to a clean energy standard. Uh, similarly, the EERS idea that you just mentioned grew out of compliance lessons with the reps. We've found that energy efficiency is an incredibly cost-effective way of meeting the reps compliance and that, in fact, every year Duke Energy hits the ceiling. Like the most amount of energy efficiency you are allowed to deploy to meet that standard, they hit that. And so the question for stakeholders was, if, if we're hitting that ceiling, why not make that ceiling a floor? Why not have a, a carve out and have it specified either on its own or as part of a larger standard and energy efficiency target? And then finally, on the carbon market that we uh, looked to, the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative that certainly comes out of other mid-Atlantic and northeastern states, but in turn, the REGI program really built on lessons from the last 30 years of how easy it is to reduce pollution in the power sector using carbon or pollution trading systems. And specifically to North Carolina, North Carolina had a very successful program for other pollutants called the Clean Smokestacks Program uh, that operated in a very similar way. And so a number of stakeholders kept referencing back to that and thinking, well, if it worked for nitrogen oxides and sulfur dioxides, maybe it works for carbon dioxide too. So we certainly looked to other states, but we also looked to North Carolina's history and, and sort of what has worked here and what might be 
expanded or transformed or sort of used as the basis for new policies to tackle carbon dioxide head on. And to your point about energy efficiency um, and, and, and kind of flipping the narrative and looking at it more as a, a, a floor versus a ceiling, that ties in really, uh, really nicely with some of the work that ACEEE had done here in North Carolina uh, and partnered up with the Nicholas Institute in producing um, that energy efficiency report that was released uh, just this past fall. Uh, we actually had a chance to interview Rachel Gold of ACEEE to talk specifically about that report. Um, and, and so you alluded to it a little bit at the beginning of your answer and talking about uh, the stakeholder process that you've helped to lead over the past year or so. Um, so specifically, the Nicholas Institute for Environmental Policy Solutions was was tapped to help lead that process. So what uniquely qualifies your organization to help lead up this process? And then maybe can you tell us a little bit more about the process in general? Sure. I don't know about uniquely qualified. I think there are a lot of particularly academic uh, institutions across North Carolina that, that could have done this as well. But during the CEP stakeholder process, it became clear that whoever held the pen on this report, it was really important that a broad range of stakeholders would find them trustworthy, objective, and fair. Uh, there were a lot of different voices in the room with very uh, strong interests and strong views on what should happen on the grid. Uh, and I can talk a little bit about that in a moment. And it was really important to have facilitators of that process uh, that people trusted, that sort of, you know, we were not trying to reach consensus. We did not reach consensus, but we were not trying to do that. We recognized that there were going to be lots of different views and that a lot of deciding which policy tools to employ here is a conversation about trade-offs and different stakeholders will find one or another consideration more important. And then you have that conversation. And because we, good news, have options here, you can have that conversation and then figure out best paths forward. So what was just important was that the arbiters of the process were trusted and people felt like they, their voices were being heard. Uh, sometimes they were able to change the outcomes, for instance, in conversations about assumptions that we should put in our modeling. Sometimes maybe they didn't win that, but they felt at least that they'd been heard and that people understood their position. So I think the Nicholas Institute uh, has a deep experience both in stakeholder engagement and facilitation and also in research, including we have our own power sector model that Martin Ross uh, operates, and that was instrumental to this process as well. Um, as far as how the process went, we, we did, again, not only start with sort of the policy pathways that the CEP had identified, but we started with the stakeholders who had been engaged in that process. Uh, and we looked at that list, list and figured out were there other interests or geographies in North Carolina that weren't represented, and then we, we took some lengths to find those additional voices. And we had a stakeholder group of about 100 that we would periodically uh, cycle back to, give them updates on our research, solicit input, incorporate that as we went forward. From that group, we also had two smaller working groups, a policy working group and a technical working group that were much more our workhorses day in, day out, really close to the process. And ultimately our hope is that anyone who reads the report, when they go to Appendix A and see the people and the organizations that were involved, even if they don't know those people, that they will see 
organizations on those lists that they feel represent their interests, that their views were heard during this process and so they can trust the outcome. And so, yeah, you started diving into to some of the stakeholders. Um, could you maybe provide us a little bit more detail about the types of stakeholders that were in the room? Absolutely. So because this was about the power sector, we had the investor-owned utilities that serve retail customers in North Carolina, so Dominion Energy, and then Duke Energy Carolinas and Duke Energy Progress. We had municipal utilities represented. We had the rural electric cooperatives represented. We had consumer advocates represented. The NC Justice Center was there. We had manufacturing associations, sort of the big electric consumers in the state there, uh, bringing affordability concerns to the table and competitiveness concerns to the table. We had environmental organizations, a lot of clean energy companies uh, that have blossomed in, in North Carolina over the past decade or so, in part because of policies like NC Reps. Uh, we had government officials, both utilities commission and environmental uh, folks there at the table, academics, uh, in addition to our work uh, at the Nicholas Institute and our colleague Jonas Monast at UNC Law School. He was also an equal partner in this endeavor. We had a lot of input from folks at NC State, which was really helpful. So a, a nice mix of, of lots of different kinds of voices. We learned about outreach and inclusion even during the process. And so, for instance, we were um, at the outset, we had identified some environmental justice interests to have at the table, uh, but found that their, their participation was not as robust because they were often participating in these lengthy meetings on a volunteer basis. This wasn't what they get paid to do. And so we also did extensive separate outreach to environmental justice organizations to sort of brief them on what we were doing and to take input from their perspectives and make sure that was reflected in the report as well. So quite, quite an array of stakeholders that were in the room that probably brought, you know, varying degrees and, and a whole wide uh, variety of, of recommendations uh, to the table. So sounds like you and your team and the group had, had their work cut out for them. So can you tell us a little bit about um, some of the recommendations uh, or maybe even just the ideas that were discussed in the room and how those led to maybe some of the final recommendations that are going to make their way into the report? Yeah, so a number of really interesting strands of conversation. One was the, the tension that we saw in the room between meeting near-term targets and that mid-century carbon neutrality target. So a lot of stakeholders were much more focused on the near-term, felt it was much more within our control. It was something we, we know how much can the regulatory context or other sort of exogenous factors change between now and 2030. We really, we sort of have a good sense of uh, what we're building today, that it would still be there in 2030. We have some sense of technologies on the horizon, some sense of sort of where costs will be with the various resources. By 2050, it gets a lot tougher, right? We're, we're sort of, and some stakeholders didn't want to talk about it at all. And we're sort of just, you know, why don't we just wait for that great breakthrough in the most cost-effective, largest battery of all time, or, you know, just let's wait for some miracle and, and kind of put that off. I mean, ultimately we came down to where we, we focused a lot more on the near-term target, but then would 
sort of compare the trajectories from that point between the different policies that we modeled, because some of them looked great in the near term, but uh, then didn't really get us on course anywhere close to hitting that that carbon neutral target mid-century. So for instance, and this was also a, a separate sort of strand in the conversation, was the role of coal going forward. A lot of uh, stakeholders actually agreed that retiring coal might be the, the easiest sort of path forward. There was some consensus on the fact that that's our most coal intensive or carbon intensive resource, um, that it's already sort of teetering on the brink of uneconomic and even just between last year and this year's 2019 and 2020 IRPs by Duke Energy Progress and Duke Energy Carolinas, the number of additional coal units that were on the chopping block uh, more than doubled. And so there was a sense of this might be the right economic move, the right environmental move. And the near-term emissions reductions, not only of carbon dioxide, but also of local pollutants, looks great from a sort of accelerated coal retirement policy. But a couple of things happened if you only did that. One, it didn't speak to what should be replacing that retiring capacity. And while there is convergence of cost across generating resources, there's still a little bit of a cost advantage for natural gas. And so there was this tendency of the system to want to build a lot of natural gas, which is less carbon intensive than coal, but by no means gets us to that net zero target by mid-century. The other uh, issue was if you retired all of the coal, some coal was playing sort of a, a, an important backup sort of reserve role in the system. And when you got rid of that, you actually drove more combustion turbine, natural gas fired combustion turbine builds to, to substitute for that role. And so there was some question about, is it better to keep existing fossil resources online uh, to play those sort of backup roles, perhaps have them only run, for instance, on a cold winter morning, uh, or get rid of them and, and, and have a lot of additional combustion turbines built. And so through these conversations, stakeholders started realizing it's not enough just to sort of get rid of what is the most carbon intensive resource today, but to think more broadly and on a longer term, what are the sort of push and pull policies that we could deploy together? So if we're going to push some resources out of the system, what do we want to pull into the system? And how do we come up with sort of a, a, a framework that sends clear signals to the utilities and other power providers about the kind of grid we want in 2050? It's going to be really tough to be carbon neutral. Uh, but it can only help us to sort of get the policies in place sooner rather than later. And so that that was sort of how discussions went. From there, it was really some people really liked the idea of clean energy policies more because they saw that as a big job creator, uh, drive economic development. Uh, others were really focused on the sort of ultimate price tag and would sort of you know want to look and see which were the lowest cost per ton programs. Another point of tension, I'd say, among stakeholders arose around assumptions that we should use for renewables cases. There's a lot of difference of opinion, for instance, about the effectiveness of battery storage to meet peak load. And so we had extensive conversations about that with members, particularly of our technical policy group. 
Um, there were also discussions about what the payback period should be for renewables, whether it should be 20 years or 30 years. And this, both of these things probably sound, you know, very in the weeds and very wonky, but they had incredibly deep implications for the outcomes. So when we had those kinds of back and forths between stakeholders, we tended to go with more conservative assumptions about battery storage effectiveness or about uh, renewables payback uh, for our standard cases. And we got some pushback from the clean energy community on that. But we then ran sensitivities or alternative cases where we used the more optimistic uh, assumptions to show what a big difference that makes in the system. And so for instance, a clean energy standard that meets the 70% target by 2030 gets us pretty darn close to net zero by 2050. Its price comes down, total system costs cumulate over time, comes down 40% if you pay back renewables over a 30 year period rather than a 20 year period. And this is in net present value dollars. That's a huge difference. So we, we tried to make that clear when there were these discrepancies between sort of stakeholder positions. We went with more conservative on the renewables, but then we showed what would happen if this actually broke in that more optimistic and not outlandish way. Um, none of these things were pie in the sky numbers. 30 years is a very standard payback period. So, but when we had those disagreements, that's how we chose to address those in the report. So it was transparent and people saw what the difference, uh, what difference was made by using one assumption or the other. And so the sort of what else you do other than some signal that drives out some amount of coal, that's where we had divergence. But again, I think ultimately the report has options forward. So there was rather than a, there is no single path forward, but I, I actually think that that makes it a stronger document. There's, there's lots of paths forward and then it's a matter of figuring out which we want to choose. If I'm understanding correctly, there was, there seemed to be um, a lot of momentum around the idea of, of coal retirement, but the, the final report that's, that's coming out was not necessarily a, a consensus document, but lays out a whole sort of menu of options that were discussed in the group. So I am curious, are there aspects of some of the the options that were laid out in uh, the final report that will be coming out shortly, or by the time we publish this episode that will be out, uh, that make sure to consider disadvantaged and low and moderate income communities in North Carolina? Yeah. So again, in the, the clean energy plan process, there was a really robust discussion on core values and sort of as we decarbonize the grid, what's important to stakeholders in North Carolina and in things like costs and emissions and then cost effectiveness of sort of seeing dollar per ton of CO2 reduced um, changes to the makeup of our power grid. Do we get a lot more clean energy? There was a lot of interest in that. Uh, but then there were these other sort of bigger concepts like affordability and equity. And what we found when we set up our, the, our plan, our research plan for 2020, was that some of those metrics were really uh, easy outputs from our models, right? We would find out what the costs uh, were. We would find out what the uh, emissions reductions could be. Of course, these are all directional numbers. They're not precise, but you know, we, we could at least have numbers to compare policies against. 
when you got to concepts like affordability and equity, those are much bigger, more complex concepts and cost and emissions and job creation. Those numbers start to get you there, but they don't get you all the way there. And so we have a, a section in the report that speaks to both of those concepts and relates a, a series of conversations we had with some of our stakeholders about each of those issues and what they meant. So, you know, affordability, we really had to tease out, you know, that means sort of energy burden for low and moderate income households. It also meant competitiveness for the industrial and commercial sectors. Um, equity, lot, lots wrapped up in there. Um, it included sort of what happens to communities in North Carolina that are reliant on existing fossil plants that would retire and sort of what is the transition plan. It was about um, historically overburdened communities, including communities of color and indigenous people in North Carolina. Um, and then it was about people in different stages of income or different parts of North Carolina, sort of rural versus urban and sort of who is going to uh, see the advantages of a new clean energy economy, where are the jobs going to be. And so trying to figure out how to fit that all in was, was no small task. But the way we tried to manage it is to introduce those concepts, talk about some general ways you could make any of these policies more affordable or more equitable. And then throughout the report, when we describe the different policies, we have options for how to make them more equitable. So particularly on some of the um, issues you just raised of sort of disadvantaged or low or moderate income communities. We talk about maybe looking just to our north, to Virginia, where um, their legislature in 2020 directed the Utilities Commission to think about a percentage of income payment program, which would cap electricity bills for low income households to 10% of their budget. Um, so there were conversations about that, and we have that reflected in our report. We talked about monitoring if we did a, a carbon emissions trading program to make sure that that didn't create hotspots of local pollutants um, around any particular power plant in North Carolina. We talked about just general process to make sure that disadvantaged communities and low and moderate communities are involved in permitting decisions and other decisions. And so the attempt was to characterize these concepts, try to describe how you could operationalize them. And they didn't really become so much a basis for comparison between the policies as a, okay, once you've come up with your suite of policies, here are these add-on design features. And by add-on, I don't mean uh, optional, but sort of these are these, this is this layer now, now that you have your suite of policies, now you need to figure out how to incorporate these other design elements in order to achieve affordability and equity, and here are some ways you might consider doing that. We also specifically looked, uh, were North Carolina to set a sort of carbon budget, a sort of limit on the carbon dioxide pollution that all power plants could emit in the state. And we looked at doing that by joining the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative. We, we actually modeled a version of that program where revenues from the auction proceeds, if you were auctioning sort of the, the right to pollute one ton of carbon dioxide, that we modeled what would happen if you put that into direct bill assistance for all residential customers, but also we then looked at it if we only put that money all into low-income households. So there was that specific policy too. Since we are talking about some of the details here and some of the, the options that were laid out, you mentioned Reggie, 
Um, we talked about a number of other different things. Can you can you dive in and maybe talk a little bit about some of those options that that are coming out of this report that are on the table? Yeah, sure. So they, we started with with uh, the categories in the clean energy plan. We ultimately came up with four policy pathways plus then uh, scenarios where you combined multiple policies. The first policy was a push, and I'd say the first three are push policies. So it's a matter of either pushing certain resources out of the system or pushing emissions down in our system. Uh, The first of those was the coal retirements and sort of thinking about what would the system look like if we had some sort of policy that mandated or encouraged accelerated retirement of coal, such that either there was no coal left on North Carolina's system by 2030, or that we would have retired all the small, less efficient subcritical units and kept some of the larger, more efficient ones on for that sort of reserve role that I talked about before. Um, The second of the push mechanisms would be not resource specific, but would be about emissions and it would be a carbon adder. And so the idea was that if a utility went to the utilities commission and wanted to build new capacity, that they would have to add this price on carbon uh, into that equation so that the least cost determination of what resource should be built might shift. Um, And we actually found, we looked at lots of different levels of those carbon adders and found that a pretty modest one, starting at just $6 a ton in 2023 and increasing by 7%, was enough to knock out new gas, a lot of new gas. We also then looked at a variation on that about what if we had an adder on uh, Duke Energy's generation decisions? What should I run any given day to meet customer demand? And we, again, used that modest $6 a ton Um, adder and found that that was enough to knock out use of any coal in the system and a good deal of gas. The third push uh, policy that we looked at was also technology neutral, so not targeting coal or gas, but pressuring emissions downward. And that was this carbon cap. So this idea that you could have a declining pollution cap over the entire power sector in North Carolina and have that get more and more stringent every year it acts somewhat like a musical chairs where in order to emit a ton of carbon dioxide, a generator has to hold a permit to emit that ton. And so you have fewer of those permits every year. And so there's swapping of those, buying and selling of them in order to uh, hold enough allowances to meet your output. Um, And so that was that was modeled looking at it not just with North Carolina, but joining a, a broader 12-state regional trading program. Um, that broader program then brings costs down because there are more generators to buy and sell from. And then the final policy or, or sort of category of policies are our poll policies. And these were the clean energy policies. So looking at you know, an expanded renewable energy portfolio standard looking at clean energy standards, which can be broader than a renewable portfolio standard because they we defined it to be anything that is zero emitting. So that could be uh, fossil with carbon capture, it could be nuclear, um, in addition to wind and solar and batteries and whatever else comes around the bend. Um, we looked at an energy re- uh, efficiency resource standard. We looked at a clean energy standard with a specific carve out for offshore wind. Uh, but all of those were our pull policies. What do we want to see pulled into the grid between now and 2050 to achieve 
not only these decarbonization goals, but those other core values we talked about. So lots of work because there are a lot of options that you, you laid out on the table there um, and lots of different options that we've seen you know, work well in lots of different markets across the country. You know, North Carolina is, you know, similar in, in some ways and very dissimilar in other ways. And so I think, you know, to the work that you guys have done, it's very important to lay out a menu of options on the table. Um, and so that kind of leads really well into the next question I had for you, um, which is, you know, where where do we go next with these? And, and how or do we take these the options and implement them into action? That's a great question, Matt, and not one that the Nicholas Institute has to answer on its own or even at all. So uh, we've been directed to write this report again with uh, our colleague at UNC Law and to submit it to the governor. Uh, what we've heard is that the the governor and his staff and, and uh, several of the agencies are looking forward to reading this. Um, we have plans for reaching out to people and talking about the results of the study and laying out these options. And then it's just a matter of, you know, finding a, a path forward that, that the, the administration is comfortable with and that stakeholders support. So that is not, not part of our process, but it, it does seem like there is, uh, that the report is and heavily anticipated and that there's lots of discussion around it. So I don't think this is going to be one of those academic reports that lies collecting dust on a shelf. I'll say that. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. And I know that our organization NCSEA has been eagerly awaiting uh, this report. And I know many of other, uh, many other influencers um, and folks in positions of power here in the state are also really excited about that report too. And uh, if I have to guess, it would be very informative in the direction of the clean energy industry moving forward in the state of North Carolina. So um, a little later on this episode, we'll hear from Josh Brooks at RMI to talk about the B1 or NERP process. Um, so does the work of that group integrate at all into the findings of this A1 stakeholder group? Yeah, great question. First of all, Josh is a wonderful person, so I'm glad you get to talk to him. Uh, we stayed in very close contact with RMI and DEQ throughout this process because, as you said, the, the, the two processes, while separate, have heavy implications for one another. Uh, you know, you were just saying that it's important to look at policies in other states and then figure out what would work well in North Carolina given our context. What B1 was discussing was, do we like our context or are there changes, whether modest or foundational, that we should make? We already going into this process in A1 knew that between now and 2050, North Carolina is not likely to look exactly as it looks today. And that includes regulatory processes and the context in which our utilities operate and deliver electricity. Uh, but those types of changes were explicitly on the agenda for B1. And so it was really important that we keep communication lines open. I participated in the NERP process. Jonas Monast um, participated particularly in the conversations they were having about coal securitization. 
because that was a particular financial mechanism that might help with accelerated coal retirement if that pathway that we describe in A1 was one that, that the state decided to move forward on. There were other places where there were very specific direct links uh, when they were looking at performance-based mechanisms, for instance, that the Utilities Commission could sort of better align utility profit-making incentives with public policy preferences. One of those public policy preferences could be decarbonization. And so we talked a bit about that sort of connection as well. But more broadly, uh, certainly if we were to have additional rounds of competitive procurement, more open source uh, competitive procurement in the state, uh, more robust participation by third party providers going forward. There was even conversation in B1 about uh, more of a competitive market here. Obviously, those would have transformational implications for how we decarbonize North Carolina. We couldn't really speculate on that in A1, but you'll see in A1, there is sort of a call out box in one place of, you know, we're writing this at a particular moment in time. This will be a funny time capsule for somebody to read in 2050. You know, we recognize there could be a lot that changes uh, between now and then. And those types of conversations were very much front and center of the B1 stakeholder process. And then throughout our report, we refer to that process where we think it would be helpful for a reader to, to know about that and have that in mind when they're reading about our goals. So, yeah, really important that those two processes keep each other in mind. That's important uh, context and an important mindset that our listeners should take into uh, consideration as they, they listen to our next interview uh, with Josh. All right. So are there, are there other things that you think are important that listeners and the clean energy community as a whole should know about the A1 stakeholder process, especially as we're getting ready to release the report or um, in this case have just recently released the report? Yeah, I mean, I think there, there, there are some really big takeaways even before you get to the specific policy pathways that we outline, let alone the variations on those policies, which thankfully we did not get into today. Um, but the, the big picture takeaways that, that we take from this is that our system is very much poised for transition. And so we're at this really interesting moment in time where we are seeing a convergence of costs between different types of resources. Uh, that's why we're seeing a lot of coal retiring and that we have seen over the past 10 years, not only from North Carolina's grid, but across the country. Um, and so it seems that you know, modest changes in relative prices of any of these generating resources have really big outcomes because they're all getting so close. And so then I think we were asking ourselves, well, then maybe, you know, why do we need policy, right? If this is sort of already slowly happening. And it seems from the modeling results that we're just at this moment of if and as we see some of our most carbon intensive resources come offline, we have momentum at our back if we choose to uh, want to decarbonize the grid. Like now is a good moment to do so because we're making decisions right now about the capacity that replaces that retiring coal and that will be with us for the next 40 to 60 years. And so 2050 may seem like a long time off. It's not when you think about big capital investments on the grid. And so policies right now 
maybe more effective than policies even in five or seven years when a lot of new capacity may already have been built and a lot of that may be emitting gas-fired capacity. Uh, so I think just even before you get into how we do it, I think this is sort of the the modeling in our report sort of makes the case for why now is a good time to be talking about these policies and thinking about deploying some of them to send these signals to the grid and about the type of makeup we want on the grid over the next few decades. Absolutely. That is that is a, a very important consideration is the, the lifespan of you know, new generation, uh, as you mentioned, right, could could be 40, 50 years down the road. Uh, so the decisions that we make today, um, you know, definitely have the potential to impact where we are in terms of carbon reduction uh, by mid-century, which is some of the goals or targets that we're aiming for as part of the clean energy plan here in North Carolina. Well, Kate, I really enjoyed the conversation today and learning more about all the work that uh, the Nicholas Institute and all of the stakeholders put into making this A1 report possible. Um, and I look forward to personally taking some time to to read the report. And I'm sure our, our listeners do as well. So we'll make sure to link that in the show notes here today. But Kate, thank you so much for joining us on the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Thanks, Matt. It was a pleasure. I really appreciate you inviting me. All right. So my key takeaway from the conversation with Kate is the importance of diversity and representation. As you heard from Kate, there were a large number of very different groups representing a wide series of interests in the room. It didn't make the process of putting together a final report with options easy, but it did help to ensure that the report represented the interests of those across the board, from utilities to clean energy advocates to environmental justice groups. There seems to be a growing consensus of the need to reduce carbon from the power sector. However, the path to getting there will definitely be a challenge, but a challenge North Carolina is ready for. The work of Kate and her team along with the UNC Center for Climate, Energy, Environment, and Economics, and all of the stakeholders in the room cannot be understated. They have truly forged a path forward for North Carolina to take as we strive for carbon neutrality by 2050. If you're interested in reading more about the details of some of the policy options put forth in the A1 report recently published, check out the link in today's show notes. And as we mentioned at the top of the show, today's episode is going to be a two-parter. So tune in to our next episode to get the rundown on the B1 stakeholder process. And that's a wrap on part one of this episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. But before you go, I'll leave you with another dad joke to hold you over to part two of this episode. So where do electricians get their supplies? The Ohm Depot. Get it? Ohm? O-H-M? And you know the deal. Let's stay in touch on Twitter. Give me a shout at Matt Abel, M-A-T-T-A-B-E-L-E, for future episode ideas, questions for our next episode, thoughts on today's episode, and your worst energy joke one-liners. And episode 45 of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast is in the books. But before you leave, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and share the pod on whatever platform you are listening in from. Sharing this podcast with your network and growing the friends of the pod helps us get just a little bit closer to our shared vision of a clean energy economy for North Carolina. All right, that's it. See y'all later.